I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this season we are looking at women trapped in towers and the assholes who sent them there. And here's the thing about this season, which is like numerous stories that I'm excited to share with you because I just want to share them with somebody and you're who there is to share with. But there's a lot of cool points. And last week, didn't I say specifically that just because someone's story might end in murder or tragedy that doesn't retroactively mean their whole life is tragic? But here's the thing. We read enough stories about women whose lives end with like multi-year trapped in towers helpless scenarios it it does get a little sad so i'm going to try and focus on interesting and cool things as well as the inevitable trapped in towers parts and i don't know let this be a cautionary lesson to me to try and not choose a theme that ends with like every story ending in the same frustratingly tragic way anyway Blah, blah, blah. I also wanted to mention that you may not know this. I didn't know this when I first started studying history in my undergrad, is that social history is what this podcast is about, and that's what I'm almost exclusively interested in. Um, and that's the history of like people and their real lives and their lived experiences, rather than there's other people who study other people who study military history or like the history of, you know, sea battles or whatever so I'm really looking at people and what their their feelings were and what their lives were like like day to day which I bring up 
just because in the past two episodes and in this episode and in future episodes, there's a lot of um, land battles going on. I don't want to come across like that stuff didn't matter because that sort of spells out what happens to so many people because there's so many people fighting over so much land and territory but that's just not what we're looking at today what we're doing is just like coloring it you know if like you've got your coloring page of history like the the shapes or maybe it's more like a connect the dots situation but like what the kings were doing what the wars what wars were happening what like religious genocides are happening like those are those are kind of the main things that are shaping what happens today um in the world that we've inherited from all these people who had all these wars back then. And what this podcast is doing and the sort of social history that I like to study and write about is what we're shading that in, you know, maybe bringing in like pencil crayons or you might call them colored pencils to just like bring it all a bit more to life to sort of understand better where it's not just names and dates, but it's like people and what they were feeling. And I just wanted to bring that up because I'm going to be glossing over a lot of war stuff in this episode. And please know that that stuff is important. And there's lots of other people who've written extensively about that. But I'm talking about a woman who has not been extensively written about to the point that when you Google her, or at least when I did, maybe this is just like the internet knowing who I am or whatever. But like the first search result was my own essay I wrote, which is like kind of startling because um, there's... One more people need to write about this stuff. Who we're looking at today is Isabel of Portugal, the Queen of Castile and Leon. And so my sources for this were Wikipedia, um, also a piece on encyclopedia.com, an essay from the venerablevixens.wordpress.com, who is a blog who writes about cool women in history. And then also, like, apparently the one and only biography ever written of this woman. Isabel the Queen, Life and Times by Peggy K. Liss. And just to situate this all in a time and place, because, you know, we've been doing sort of England-based things for a while, but we're hopping across over into Portugal slash Spain. But this is a sort of time period where it wasn't like one giant unified country that we would call Spain. It's like all little kingdoms. So it's that sort of time when what we would call France now was like all little kingdoms and England kind of was too. Okay, so just to place this in like the overall family tree of like European royal people who are all married to each other and all of the same names. So we've got Isabel of Portugal, who we're looking at today. Her daughter, one of her daughters, was Isabella I of Castile, who we talked about in season two. That was Isabel who married Ferdinand. She's the one whose story was kind of like, wow, look at this woman who's like living this horrible situation and then oh wow now she's queen and they're like oh no now she's doing genocide it was that was her story um in season two and so isabel we're talking about today is the mother of her isabella from ferdinand and isabella is herself the mother of catherine of aragon the first wife of henry the eighth catherine of aragon being the mother of queen mary the first um and then just backtracking Isabella from Ferdinand and Isabella, her other daughter, one of her other daughters was Juana of Castile, a.k.a. Juana la Loca, the famous, the famous, quote unquote, mad queen. So the thing that all these women have in common, Isabel of Portugal, Isabella I of Castile, Catherine of Aragon, 
Mary the First, Juana of Castile, is they were all seen at various times and to various levels as insane women. So it's like, are they, is this a genetic thing? Like, is, is this like an inbreeding situation? Like, why are they all quote unquote mad? And it's like, mm, no, it's just they were all in situations that uh, would affect a lot of people psychologically. They also were very strong-willed. They were raised like each of them had a mother who was very strong-willed, who raised them to be strong-willed. And the men around them were just like, whoa, what's this woman with an opinion? She must be crazy. So this is why I started looking at, like backtracking back to who we're actually talking about, Isabel of Portugal, was because I was reading about Juana of Castile and it said like, did she inherit the madness, quote unquote, from her grandmother? And I'm like, oh, who's her grandmother? And then I started reading about Isabel and I'm just like, oh my God, it's just like, it's all the same things we keep seeing, but it's in a different way. She's her own person. There's some very interesting stuff going on in this. So we're going back to 15th century Portugal, where Isabel was born in 1428 into the powerful Aviz family of Portugal. So... Her mother was named Isabella of Braganza. Everyone in this family just called Isabel, Isabella. And her father, Joao, was the uncle of the Portuguese king. So her father is the uncle of the king. I'm not, I can't quite tell you what that makes Isabel's relationship to him. But the Portuguese king is Afonso V. So whatever her specific relation to him was, it basically meant that as soon as she was born, it was like, she's one of those girls where it's like, who are we going to marry her to? We're going to make some great alliances. Like, here we go. So her family decided to marry her off to King Juan II of Castile. And this is where all of her problems began because he was really awful. Um, because like every husband is in every podcast I do. So the thing about King Juan II of Castile, Isabel's betrothed, is it's a very Henry VI, Margaret of Anjou situation, where Juan was, he was, he was not a great king in that sort of like useless way, where like maybe he would have been great in some other career path, but he just did not have the disposition to be a very effective king in like warring medieval Europe. In a very similar to Henry VI, actually. He was, although Henry VI was more kind of like monk guy, like pacifist. Juan, I think, was just sort of like useless. So he was sort of an early adopter of the Renaissance prince idea of like the guy who um, just hangs out reading poetry, discussing philosophy, and like tapping his beard going, hmm, interesting point. Like, which is a great way to be, but not when you're the king of Castile. And everybody is invading everywhere because it's the late medieval period in Western Europe. So you might think, well, why didn't someone seize power from him if he was so useful? And the thing is that people did not seize power from him because, like Henry VI, he had a very powerful and influential and scary right-hand man. And in this case, Juan's right-hand man was named Alvaro de Luna. And he literally murdered everyone who got in the king's way. So... If you're so it's kind of like Juan was like the face of being the king, but De Luna was sort of like actually the one doing everything. For instance, Juan's first wife was a woman named Maria of Aragon. They had four children together, but only one survived because of the regular like rate of child death, etc. 
And the only child that survived was like, luckily for them, because it's, you know, sons are important for like inheriting reasons in this time and place, was a son named Prince Enrique. And the thing is that he was awful. He was, he was bad in a more malevolent way. Juan was just kind of useless, but Enrique was just, we'll find out. So Enrique grew up and became a man and got married to a woman named Bianca Blanca, the second of Navarre. I know I'm just like jumping around person to person, but bear in mind, eventually we're going to, so Juan is going to become Isabel's husband. But prior to this, to him being engaged to this young child, he had a wife and four children and his one surviving child from this first marriage to Blanca was a boy named Enrique. Enrique grew up like Juan is like a lot older than Isabel, like Enrique, like Juan's son is a lot older than Isabel. Like it's a much younger bride situation. Enrique married Blanca. Years went by. They didn't have any children. Like this is anyway, a lot of this really reminds me of a lot of the aspects of the Margaret of Anjou situation. But here, so Enrique was the heir to the throne of 15th century Castile Having some sons was pretty non-negotiable for, like, what he was supposed to do in his life. Everyone was just like, why aren't Enrique and Blanca having any kids? Where the bigger question was, like, wait, have these two even consummated their marriage that they've been married in for numerous years? And the answer was that, much like, oh, God, who is a Catherine de Medici's husband, Again, and potentially Henry VI, Enrique had an unusually shaped penis. I can't believe this is a second episode. Will there be more? Where everything hinges on someone's unusually shaped penis. He couldn't impregnate a woman because of the shape of his penis, whatever that looked like. Um, so he had like this sort of unusually shaped penis, which meant that he could not impregnate a woman. But that's sort of like a bit too um, detailed for medieval gossipy people. So everyone just started calling him El Impotente, like the impotent. So like we're going to get back to Isabel very soon, but you really need to understand about Enrique and Juan and this whole situation. So Juan, the useless king, was just like reading poetry while his evil advisor De Luna was just like, you look, Juan. Your son, Enrique, is clearly never going to have any children, and your wife, Maria, is past her childbearing years, so you should get a new younger wife and start having some more sons so we can have, like, a line of succession going on here. But as a Catholic king in a Catholic country, Juan couldn't divorce Maria, his wife. So he was like, well, I don't know. What, what do you suggest we do, De Luna? And De Luna was like, well, what I suggest and what I'm going to do is to poison Maria to death. And he did. Murder was just kind of his thing. And this is why Juan, 43 years old, was on the market for a new wife. And it was at this point, De Luna went out to try and find a suitable match. You know, someone young, tangentially royal and fertile. And it was De Luna who noticed 19-year-old Isabel and thought, oh, she seems both fertile and compliant, and began writing out papers for this new marriage. So Isabel, the main point, the heroine of today. We don't know a lot about her as a person, but what we do know is that she had dark eyes, she was beautiful, and like all of her female descendants, she felt things very strongly. She had 
strongly held opinions about things and felt things very strongly. So the ideal at this point in this place in time, 15th century Portugal, was for young women to be beautiful, but also submissive and just, you know, godly and whatever. But Isabel was a passionate sort of person whose personality would not be restrained by societal conventions. Like, we don't know much about many other women who were living in late medieval Portugal, apart from how pretty they were. But Isabel's personality was so interesting and unconventional that people wrote about it. Like, so it had to be quite interesting, frankly, because no one was in the habit of writing about personalities of teenagers, teenage girls. So before they got officially married, Juan came down to meet Isabel just to make sure this was like, you know, that there was chemistry there. He was immediately smitten with her because she was super interesting, passionate, maybe unlike other women he had met. She was also 19 and fertile. So, but what did she think of her 43-year-old husband? Um, And again, she was not known for having a poker face or trying to hide her thoughts, and she was not enthusiastic about it, but she had no say in the matter, and they got married. Isabel's not just beautiful and passionate, and opinionated. She's also very smart, uh, very clever, very observant. So she instantaneously realized the toxic power relationship going on between her new husband, Juan, and his murderous advisor, De Luna. She was like, why does Juan, my husband, just lie around reciting poetry when he's the king and he should be doing king things? Like, why is De Luna in charge of literally everything, including how often and for how long the two of them have sex? Because, yeah, Um, De Luna was so meddling and obsessed with power that he literally scheduled when Juan and Isabel could have sex. And then he otherwise just sort of lurked around murderously. So in sort of like a Jane Eyre slash Crimson Peak slash Rebecca sort of way, like I feel like Isabel might have started to suspect that maybe her predecessor, Juan's first wife, Maria, might not have died of natural causes. And then she started to suspect that Delina might be trying to poison her as well, which is like kind of his thing. So this is a situation where paranoia is like, and we've talked about other ones in this podcast, but it's like, is it paranoid when literally there's someone who actively is poisoning you? Like, no, that's just being smart and having good instincts. So Isabel decided it was time to get rid of Deluna. Juan was like Henry VI. Juan was so useless. He couldn't be without someone telling him what to do all the time. So Isabel decided that, okay, he needs someone like telling him what to do all the time. Like that will be me, his wife, his 19 year old wife. I will be his new advisor. So sort of like in the movie, the favorite, but more murdery, Isabel and De Luna began Well, they just entered into a rivalry to see which of them would end up being the ultimate survivor as his advisor. So similar to Margaret of Anjou. And what's his face from the first episode, right? Um, Isabel, like Margaret, had one tactic that De Luna couldn't match her on, and that was sexy times. So she would whisper suggestions to Juan when they were in bed together. You know, like, I don't know. It was a time when they could be together. De Luna wasn't around and she could sort of like be like, mm, wouldn't it be cool if you got rid of De Luna? And Juan was like, I do the last thing someone told me to. And the next morning, De Luna would come and talk to him and be like, mm, can we murder your wife? And Juan was like, mm, okay, I'll do what the next, last person to talk to me to says. Like, he's just not even a person. Um, 
Isabel became pregnant, and at which point she gained even more influence over Juan because having a child made her more important because she was like the parent of potentially, like Enrique was still the heir to the throne, but she was going to be kind of like the spare, the mother of the spare to the throne because Enrique didn't have children because we're J. Penis. And Enrique again was her stepson who was older than her. Um, the pregnancy itself was bad news for Isabel because this was medieval times and obstetrics were not especially helpful at the time. She had a very rough pregnancy and childbirth with sex, no matter who you are and where you're living. Um, but I feel like 1400s Portugal, especially not a great place to have a tough pregnancy and childbirth. But both she and the baby both survived. And this was her daughter, Isabel or Isabella, who would later become Isabella the first, the Catholic queen, Isabella and Ferdinand. Um, and I also really love this thing. Like, remember Isabel's mother was Isabella, then she calls her daughter Isabella. You know, I really love, I think we could bring back women naming their daughters after themselves. I think that's cool. Um, anyway, she survived. The baby survived. Great news. Um, but then due to hormonal shifts and sleep deprivation and potentially just like the overall PTSD of this horrible birth situation in medieval Portugal, um, Isabel experienced some really awful postpartum symptoms. And instead of people being like, postpartum is a real thing, let's support her with talk therapy, medication, and like really take care of her. The doctors at the time were like, oh my God, she's gone mad and basically abandoned her into her like depression so isabel did the best she could um survival wise having you know health issues and mental health issues so she apparently alternated between sitting around being mostly borderline catatonic um and having screaming rage fits those are her two moods and both of which are understandable given the situation she's in she shut herself into a room by herself and would only speak to juan which, considering De Luna is still on the scene, and she didn't know who she could trust, and she, he was possibly still trying to kill her all the time, this makes sense to me, that she'd only talk to him. But, also, um, a side effect of this, like, she would only talk to Juan, and that made Juan even more devoted and loyal to her, because he liked that he was the only person she talked to, so maybe this is partially a ploy to her, like, amid her, like, postpartum issues. She was also able to, like, find a way to be more persuasive to him. So Juan finally came on board with Operation Get Rid of De Luna. Um, so it's sort of like, so she's scheming even in the midst of, like, horrific medieval postpartum situation, which we'll remember when we're scoring her later on. But whilst all of this was going on, De Luna still creeping around trying to figure out a way to murder Isabel and or to regain his influence over the king. But Isabel, bedridden, postpartum, in a medieval castle, was three steps ahead of him, even still, and she brought in a third co-conspirator to help out her side because she could use the help. Her new helper was a man named Alonso Perez de Vivero. But then Alonso, so he was sort of like double dealing, he was like pretending to not be working with her, but he really was working with her. But then that was De Luna found out that Alonso was helping Isabel. And so De Luna murdered Alonso by throwing him out of a window in front of witnesses. Hashtag defenestration. 
Isabel was like, oh, well, since you did that in front of witnesses, can we now arrest De Luna for murder so he won't be the king's advisor anymore? And next thing you know, De Luna was arrested for murder. So did Isabel use Alonso as a pawn to get De Luna arrested? Like, did she mastermind him throwing him out a window in front of witnesses? Or was that, she's like, either he'll help me, Alonso, or he'll be murdered, but both are good for me, Isabel. I don't know, but I like to give her some credit here. She was a scheming mastermind, even in the midst of ongoing um, mental health concerns. So De Luna was put on trial. Um, and while the trial was like underway, Isabel was pregnant again, and she was spending her time trying to not die in childbirth for the second time. The trial ended with Deluna found guilty and he was executed, um, which actually upset Juan a lot because they had this toxic codependent relationship. Five months after Deluna's execution, Isabel gave birth to a son who she named Alfonso. But, and this is great, like, there's a son, like, hooray, this is the whole point of why he married her, etc. But even this didn't cheer up Juan, whose health was now suffering from his extreme grief. I just feel like Henry VI all over again. Frankly, Juan became so ill from grief at losing De Luna, I guess. Um, he was not eating well, and also just like, that leaves you susceptible, your immune system, overall germs of like, living in medieval times with no one washing their hands. So his son Enrique, aka El Impotente, was called to royal court because he might need to take over as king because Juan was so sickly. So this is a great time to check up on like, well, what has Enrique, aka El Impotente, been up to throughout these these last few soap opera telenovela years? So unsurprisingly, um, for assholes throughout history, Enrique blamed his wife Blanca for their childlessness and divorced her. Like, okay, original Henry VIII. In a trial, just like when Henry VIII annulled his marriage to Anne of Cleves, or when What's-His-Face tried to stop Francis Howard from divorcing him, Enrique was like, I can have sex with any woman in the world other than Blanca. It's her fault, not me. My penis totally works fine. It's just her. I can have sex with her. I don't know why. And Blanca was like, are you kidding me? And Enrique was like, Blanca also is a witch. Uh, she has ensorcelled. She's a sorceress. She put, cast a spell on my penis, which is totally functional, by the way. And then Blanca had to do, like, Frances Howard style, medieval courtroom pap smear scenario, where uh, people went to look up inside of her vagina to see if she was still a virgin or not. And guess what? She was, because Enrique had an oddly shaped penis that could not go inside of vaginas. So, the marriage, I don't think it was divorce. It must have been annulled because they were Catholic. One way or another, Blanca was still alive, and Enrique got to marry again. So he got married to a woman named Juana of Portugal. And would it shock you to know that these two did not conceive any children? And she also still had her, an intact hymen because, guess what? It is Enrique is the reason they weren't having children, but he kept blaming his wives. So... Life just keeps going. Juan eventually died of grief and also probably, you know, like tuberculosis or something oldie timey, dysentery, whatever. 
and Enrique became the new king of Castile because that's his son. Enrique wasn't much of a fan of his stepmother, who was younger than him, our heroine, Isabel. He also did not like Isabel's two children, Alfonso and Isabella, who are his half-siblings, but it's the thing where like he's an adult and the half-siblings are toddlers. So Enrique sent Isabel and her two children off to live in the castle of Arevalo, which was spooky and, I put in my notes, Crimson Peak-like. He provided Isabel with much less money than she was accustomed to, like at all in her life. So, which meant that she, her two children, and her continuing postpartum mental health concerns, um, I'm thinking of like Britney Spears, who had the two children right in a row and also had all these mental health issues that were not being helped by her terrible family. So, Isabel, two children, mental issues, um... She's living now this frugal lifestyle. No one was allowed to visit them. And would you be shocked to know that she continued to be depressed and got more depressed? Like, oh my God, quote unquote, madness, right? Meanwhile, Enrique and his new wife, Juana, guess what? Still don't have any kids. Guess why? Weird shaped penis. So the next king, like they didn't have an heir. He just like needed an heir. And so the heir was basically going to need to be Isabel's son, Alfonso, which Enrique did not like because he didn't like Alfonso. He didn't like Isabel and he wanted to like father his own children and he did not understand basic anatomy. But then suddenly out of nowhere, after seven years of marriage, his wife, Enrique's wife, Juana, was pregnant. She also coincidentally at around that same time, allegedly had taken a lover named Beltran de la Cueva. Juana had a baby daughter who she named after herself because that's just what you do in those days. In that place, her baby is called Juana. And everybody was like, okay, we all secretly, they're all just like, okay, we all kind of like are in agreement that Enrique is clearly not the father of this baby, right? Everyone just sort of accepted that. And so that baby became known as Juana la Beltraneja. So remember Juana seniors. Alleged lover was Beltran, so her daughter's called Juana Le Beltraneja, meaning like the daughter of Beltran. Like everyone just called her that. That was, I'm sure Enrique freaked out about that a lot. So now she was kind of the heir, but like, let's see what happens. So at around the same time, Isabel's children, Isabella and Alfonso, were finally freed from living with their mother at the castle of Arevalo. And they got to came up, hang out at royal court with their half-brother, their much older half-brother, Enrique, a.k.a. El Impotente. This was great news for them because they were children, and it's great to see the sun and socialize and not be trapped in a spooky ghost castle with your mother who is in the midst of a years-long mental health crisis. This was bad news for Isabel because without her children, she lost what was left of her grip on reality. Allegedly... Isabella, Isabel wound up not recognizing anyone, not even family members, and spent her days and nights wandering the empty castle corridors, screaming at ghosts. And I mean, at this point, can we all agree, like, who can blame her after what has happened to her? Apparently, one of the ghosts who she saw, who she screamed at, was that of her old nemesis, De Luna. And if he was haunting her, even in death, just like, fuck that guy, honestly, leave her alone. During this time period, also, her son Alfonso died suddenly at age 14 of oldie time disease reasons, but there were rumors that maybe he was poisoned, which given everyone who's around here, you know, as much a possibility as anything else. 
So this means there was no male heirs because we had Enrique's daughter, Juana La Beltraneja. We have Isabella's, da Isabella's daughter, Isabella. There's just no boy heirs anywhere you look. And then we talked about this a bit in the Isabella episode. So when Isabel's daughter, Isabella, was a bit older, she pretended to be going to visit her mother at the castle of Arevalo when in fact she was running off to get secretly married to Ferdinand. And you can listen to that in season two. But I will note that when Isabella became an adult, Isabella, she phases off against Enrique and various other people. And then she, with her husband Ferdinand, like takes over and becomes the queen. And she also, in her adulthood, oversaw care of her mother, Isabel. So in 1496, word reached Isabella that her mother was on her deathbed. And Isabella returned to the castle of Arevalo for real to be with her mother in her final days. In her final, in this, the final years, Isabel had forgotten her own identity, apparently, and just wandered around being sort of randomly aggressive. Shortly after this mother-daughter reunion, Isabel of Portugal passed away aged 68. She was interred at, uh, next to her husband Juan and her son Alfonso. I mean, it just, I guess, put her next to Juan because he was the king and stuff, but like, not a good husband to her. Her legacy of, this is where I started looking about her, is just like, she had such a strong, vivacious personality and it was just undone by like, the world just like, beating it out of her, possibly, literally, but absolutely metaphorically. But then this sort of like super strong, opinionated, powerful, smart woman thing, like you see those traits in her daughter, Isabella, who became one of the most consequential monarchs in European history. Uh, Catherine of Aragon, her granddaughter, who never backed down even after Henry VIII tried to dump her. Um, Juana of Castile, who also was surrounded by horrible people who said she was mad and was also a very spirited person. And then her great-granddaughter, Mary I, was the first woman named officially Queen of England, and she also was seen as being sort of, quote-unquote, hysterical and maybe a little bit mad. So it all just kind of, I don't know, these family traits just sort of like repeating and repeating themselves. So this is I guess this is a bit of a shorter episode than other ones because there's just not that much known about her. There's like one biography ever written about her. I think she had a really interesting life. I think this would make a fabulous movie. Um, and it's also got so many echoes of the other stories we were looking at for sure. So we're going to give her her score, Isabel of Portugal. Scandaliciousness. This season, it's interesting so far because we're looking at women who were sent to towers and or castles, hidden away, but none of them really so far have done scandalicious things, really. I mean, we've talked in other episodes and other seasons about women who were sent to jail who were very scandalicious, like Frances Howard, but we've already talked about them. They're not in this season. So Isabel Portugal, I feel like her skin, like her personal, she was surrounded by scandaliciousness, but she personally behaved very unscandaliciously. She married her husband. There's no rumors of having affairs or anything. She just like tried to do what she, okay. Okay. You know what? I forgot. There's this, the Alfonso and then pushing or Alonzo 
having him pushed out the window. But that's scheminess. That's not scandaliciousness. I'm going to give her a two for scandaliciousness just because she was surrounded by so much like a little bit wore off on her. Her scheminess, I think, is great. Her scheminess score is high because she did a number of things, like all of the trying to get, like every day she'd have to like get her ki- the king, her husband, to do what she said instead of what De Luna was saying. And then she'd have to do that constantly. And then also like having to go head to head against De Luna. And then she won, even though she was in the midst of like serious medieval postpartum situations, like 10 for scheminess for her. Her significance, um, personally, like in a family tree type way, like her descendants became consequential in the history of both England and also Spain. She herself, though, like she didn't have a chance to really do anything of significance other than scheme and get rid of De Luna, which was good for the world but then Enrique got out of her I think I'll just a five for significance she gets a goddamn 10 for the sexism bonus because she was treated horrifically by like every man around her but then she had the scheminess to sort of like keep fighting against it until one day just you know she couldn't fight anymore and then she just wandered the castle screaming at ghosts and like I have days like that like totally not to disrespect people with mental health issues but i just want to put into perspective the fact that she's seen as this quote-unquote mad queen who just like oh my god she just went crazy where it's like no like here's a series of things that happened to her and like of course like not having anyone you could trust like being at that heightened level of paranoia like being maybe poisoned for years and then having like traumatic birth experiences and then being shut up in a castle and you can't visit anyone it's like yeah i think a lot of people would end up screaming at ghosts having gone through all of that so that gives her a total score of 27 which i think is very on par very on par with the season so far margaret pole also had a 27 margaret of anjou had a 26 um and that's isabel of portugal i think a lesser known woman who more people should know about and so now all of you know about her and and so just as a history resource to mention today this is nothing to do with Isabel specifically but just history in general I feel like if you're listening to this podcast you like me are just interested in history in general and I've mentioned before um, Instagram accounts and also books but what so I follow you probably do too if you look at my Instagram account which is vulgar history on Instagram that's why I follow like all history and podcasts and those sorts of things and I really I love on my regular Instagram I do too just to a lesser extent anyway I like to follow accounts that show pictures of people in oldie times especially people who like this gets to the social history as well so not just portraits of kings and queens but like street photography of just sort of like people who were living somewhere And what I really try to intentionally seek out are um, BIPOC people, not white people in historical context, because for so long in movies and TV shows and just sort of like the representation that we see so much about what history looked like is all white people. And I find it really, it just helps expand your understanding of 
history and there's always been people of all different colors. And so there's an account that I follow that's called Emmeline and Them. Um, it's curated by Kim 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 underscore Burley. And so she describes it as because seeing is believing and we've always been us. So circa 19th and early 20th century. And she shows just images of black people, basically from archival photos. And it's really, really, really interesting how these pictures are, they don't often show up. And just to remember that it's not like the world has always been a place with lots of different colored people in them. And it's good to be reminded of that in this sort of like passive way. Like if it's just in your Instagram, you scroll through it, you're like, oh, interesting. Like who's that? And then you can kind of read about who the person is. Um, I'm just looking to have a website as well, emmelineandthem.com. So it's an Instagram-based archival image repository featuring portraiture of everyday African-Americans from the late 1800s and early 1900s, created and curated by Kimberly Anise Henderson. So that is a history recommendation for you all. And just the regular things to remind you of, I would super appreciate if you could rate and or review this podcast wherever you listen to it, or if you listen to it somewhere where there's not rate and reviews, then like smuggle yourself into somewhere else leave a rating or a review because that sort of stuff, that's the, that's the free way that you can help support this podcast. And it really helps. And if you want to support this podcast in a financial way, then I have my Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash Foster writer, you can see there about the stuff that you get. If you pledge different amounts, if you pledge, um, I think it's $5, but then there's, I'm in Canada, so it's different in the US. It's like $7 or something like that per month. You get an extra podcast episode where I just kind of talk about men who suck. And I feel like a strong candidate for this month's episode because I do one per month. Might be Enrique, aka El Impotente, because I hate him a lot. And I think there's a lot to say there. Anyway, so the money from the patron goes towards this podcast and helping to helping me be able to do this. So I appreciate that. Um, if you go to, yeah, so Instagram, Vulgar History Pod, Twitter, Vulgar History. We have merch. I do not yet have merch set up for this season, but there is for past women and past seasons. And I will, I promise, set some up there soon. So if you want to like get something to celebrate, Isabel Portugal, Margaret of Anjou, Margaret Pohl, or the other like 17 Margarets coming this season. Stay tuned. And so that's at teespring.com slash store slash vulgar history. And then I have an ongoing book list, book lists on bookshop.org, which is a website where when you buy books through them, it helps support independent bookstores, which is more important than ever in these unprecedented times when so many businesses are having so much trouble. So bookshop.org slash list slash vulgar history recommends. And all those links are, or should be in the show notes. And next week... I don't think I'm spoiling anything too much by saying there's going to be another Margaret next week. And next week's Margaret will not be the last Margaret because it turns out a lot of Margarets got themselves trapped in towers by a lot of assholes. So take care. Keep your masks on and your tits out. And I'll talk to you next time.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.